new retro future design, all OLED displays, better camera systems, LiDAR, A14 Bionic, MagSafe, but, well, we'll get to all that. I'm Renee Ritchie, and this is my iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro review, sponsored by Brilliant. There's a difference between cost and value. And yes, I'm totally doing this review backwards. There's a difference between the price you pay and what you get for that price, for your money. And this is something I've been struggling with a lot ever since Apple announced the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 12 Pro. See, when the iPhone 10 came out three years ago, it was clearly something new, something novel, something next. But the future of iPhone came with a future popping $1,000 price tag. Two years ago, the iPhone XS tried to cement that $1,000 as the new normal, while the stripped down $800 iPhone XR felt like a discount, more compromised model that just was slipped in underneath. But then, then the iPhone 11 came out last year. No R, no Fs, and just reset expectations again, pushing aside and rebranding the high ends as Pro, reclaiming the mass market, and while still compromised compared to the Pro, its lower $700 price tag made those compromises just far, far more palatable to pretty much everybody, especially when other phones were all just racing to $1,000. And now, this year, we have the iPhone 12. Again, no letter and just negative Fs, if that's even possible, because the price tag is back up at $800. $830 if you're not getting any big three carrier cash back, up to $850 because you now have to shell out almost 20 bucks for the new and newly sold separately AC adapter. And more on that in a hot take minute. And doing the math, yeah, divide by zero, carry the one, just all the math, in 2020, of all years, the Devlin Emmerich blockbuster bomb of years, it just didn't make any sense to me. If there were any year, any year we needed a break, just a beyond Baby Yoda coming back break, a break on iPhone pricing break, it's 2020. But then over the last week, as I started doing my analysis, and especially the last five days, as I've been using, abusing whatever my review units and tests, I've come to realize something. This may well be a more expensive iPhone 12, but it's also a less expensive iPhone 12 Pro. But wait, get this. While many other premium phones have shot up to $1,200 or more over the last year, never mind the flips and the folds, even the slabs, Apple has held the 12 Pro to just exactly that $1,000 line. Like this far, no further. Better actually, because storage increased, so now you get 128 gigabytes, and the 256 and 512 gigabyte models are $50 less than last year. And here's where I start doing my review backwards. What are the features that make the regular iPhone 12 so almost pro? And what are the features that still set the actual iPhone 12 Pro apart? And is the value that they provide, both of them, is that value worth the cost to me, to you, to anyone? Apple has taken the iPhone design language, whatever the opposite of back to the future is, forward to the past. Now, we knew this, just everybody knew this was coming. We knew this since the moment we saw that updated iPad Pro a couple of years ago. The iPhone 4 and iPhone 5 style squared off sides have returned. And yet, after half a decade of curved glass and rounded antenna bands, the iPhone 12 borrows most heavily from the iPhone 5 because aluminum and manages the same trick of feeling 
just impossibly light for its size. Like it's not a real phone, but one of those dummy phones at carrier stores light, 15% less volume than the iPhone 11 light. And the squared off edges feel every bit as good or bad if you actually preferred the curves. But for me, they dig in just a little for a more secure grip. But because the back is glossy glass and not textured aluminum, and because anodization seems a little thicker, the overall feeling is different, at least on my deep blue review unit. And yeah, this year it comes in deep blue, also black and white, product red, and a minty green, RIP yellow. Same with the iPhone 12 Pro, which I got sampled in the lighter, slightly more teal looking Pacific blue, but also comes in silver. And like the new Apple Watch, graphite and 18K is in Kardashian gold. The difference is that for the 12 Pro, the very iPhone 4-like antenna band is also in a very iPhone 4-like stainless steel, which is what Apple's been using for the higher-end iPhones since the iPhone 10. It still feels light for the size, though not quite as light, but the lack of the curve also makes it feel slightly thicker. And while this is still the smaller of the iPhone 12 Pros, it's now as big as the iPhone 11 from last year, as big as the iPhone 10R, just bigger in general than the iPhone 11 Pro. And I've always wanted the non-Max Pro in this size, just the perfect middle ground. Because the bands on the colored models are PVD and not just clear coated like the iPhone 4 models were, and the glass doesn't sit above the bands but flush with them, it ends up feeling very different as well, especially with the back glass having a matte finish, something Apple introduced last year for the Pro line. Sadly, Apple didn't return to the rounded volume buttons of that bygone iPhone era, which visually I just always loved and I wish they had, but tactilely, I'll begrudgingly admit the utility of the new longer lines just works better. So retro, yes, a throwback in a way, but also a design that ends up being distinct in its own right and futuristic in its own way. And that's really the only differences between the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 12 Pro, colors and materials. Even the front glass is the same and is actually not even glass anymore. It's impregnated with nanoscale ceramic crystals, which is just a fancy way of saying super tough, but still transparent. And it makes what Apple is calling a ceramic shield. Combined with the retro flat flush design, Apple says it provides four times more break resistance than the iPhone 11, which I'm both super curious and terrified to find out about at some accidental point in the future. Now, if you're concerned at all about scratches, absolutely nothing has changed there. It's still ion exchange, chemically hardened, but brake resistance and scratch resistance are still just a trade-off, and Apple seems to be optimizing for brake resistance still. So if you used a screen protector before, you're gonna wanna keep using one now. Also, the ceramic shield is only on the front. The back is the same hardened glass as the iPhone 11 series, which Apple says is still harder than any other glass on the market, a benefit of their super buddy-buddy relationship with Corning. And that doesn't mean if you drop an iPhone 12, you want it to land butter side down because that's where the display is and still likely where the much more expensive repair will be. So be careful. And if you need to, absolutely use a case. There's a 5.4 inch iPhone mini and a 6.7 inch iPhone Pro Max or Super Max coming next month. But they're the only models in those sizes. So if you know you want the absolute smallest or biggest new iPhone 12, you know you want the mini or the max. The subtleties are all between the regular iPhone 12 and the iPhone 12 Pro. First, because they're both 6.1 inch displays now. Yeah, the Pro's all grown up. And second, they both have mostly the same displays now, mostly. 
after the iPhone XR and regular iPhone 11 stuck with the traditional double density LCD displays like iPhones have had since, well, since the iPhone 4 went retina back in 2010, the regular iPhone 12 is graduating to OLED like the iPhone 10, 10S, 11 Pro, and yeah, 12 Pro, again, mostly. This year, both models, regular and pro, have Apple's triple density XDR OLED displays, though RGB stripe LCD isn't directly comparable to Pentile OLED, which is why double versus triple density. But suffice it to say, they both have just top of the line panels. And yes, OLED isn't perfect. In previous reviews, I've gone over all the mitigations it requires for burn-in, off-axis color shift, and more. And I know some people believe it gives them eye strain or headaches due to the pulse width modulation, PWM, used to maintain performance at lower brightness levels. And if that's you, you'll absolutely want to stick with an LCD iPhone 11, 10R, or SE. But all that said, OLED is currently just the best display technology for phones, and it's going to stay that way until we get something like micro LED. For now though, the lower power draw means, even slimmed down, the iPhone 12 keeps roughly the same battery life as the iPhone 11 and iPhone 12 Pro. And Apple rates that at 17 hours for local video playback or 11 hours for streaming. And the lack of an LED backlight, which the LCD on the 10R and 11 required, means the lightning port is now all right and properly centered in the universe. Again, hurrah. And then there's HDR. You never just want more pixels. Wanting just more pixels is the real not 1080p in 2018 facepalm. What you want is better pixels, and that involves everything from color calibration and management to, yes, high dynamic range, HDR. And now both new iPhone 12s, regular and pro alike, are fully HDR, fully high dynamic range, supporting the open HDR10 and licensed Dolby Vision standards, as well as HDL, hybrid gamma log, which is what some broadcasters prefer for compatibility reasons. And they're both 2 million to 1 contrast ratio, and both can hit 1200 nits for HDR content. So blacks just look deep, inky black, whites look bright, there's detail in shadows and in highlights, reds look super rich and greens just super vibrant. And I love it. I love it when I'm watching The Mandalorian or Avengers Endgame on Disney Plus or Stranger Things or Daredevil on Netflix or, you're damn right, Ted Lasso on TV+. HDR is just how I want to watch everything now. And you may not notice the difference unless you're looking at an SDR, standard dynamic range, and HDR panel side by side. Even then, Apple's LCDs are really, really good, so you'll only notice it at extreme ends of that dynamic range. Or you may just simply not care, either or at all, on a phone-sized screen, which is totally fair, totally valid. But for those of us who do care, it's there. Unlike high refresh rate, which is another one of several characteristics that make for a really premium display these days. Now, the iPhone has been 60 hertz since it launched in 2007, which was terrific in 2007, even 2017. These days, many other phones are 90 hertz, 120 hertz, even more. It makes scrolling look smoother and reduces visual latency for however many games support it. My guess is that it's because high refresh rate OLED is still in its infancy. Apple's been doing up to 120 hertz adaptive refresh going on like three years now for the LCD iPad Pro. 
but the keyword there is adaptive. It can ramp up to 120 hertz for scrolling and the like, but also ramp down to 24 hertz for static images. And that's important because by itself, 120 hertz just burns a lot more battery. So balancing it out with 24 hertz helps maintain that battery life. Other phones have compensated by downscaling resolution, sometimes badly, by sucking up the extra drain or by adding a manual toggle that because the color management just isn't really there, you can literally see the white point change as you toggle it, which I'm guessing is just a complete deal breaker for Apple. So just like they ignored OLED until 2017 when they could get the panels they really liked, I'm guessing they'll ignore high refresh rate until 2021 when they can get the adaptive LTPO OLED panels in sufficient quantities. Similar to HDR, nerds like me just want high refresh now, now, now. Mostly because for me, the adaptive part, so I can watch those HDR movies in the proper 48 hertz, 24 frames per second that nature and Hollywood just have always intended even if others can't see the difference or simply don't care, which frankly is probably more than 90% of the market still today. But either way, and with all of that context understood, it's still totally fair to ding the iPhone 12 for not having high refresh and to see when and if Apple adds it next year, whether the quality was really worth the wait. And meanwhile, if you want it too, just hit that like button and we'll see how high it gets. And also, yes, the notch is still there. And personally, I don't care at all. Subjectively, you might prefer a notch or a forehead or a hole punch, but objectively, they all waste pixels and none of them are any less of a splinter in any of our eyes, especially since Apple would need like four hole punches and I can't take that many spider eyes. I just can't, not even in 2020. Mechanical chuchers, what raise and lower hidden cameras, introduce new points of potential mechanical failure, and under-display cameras still aren't ready for prime time. So we'll likely have notches of diminishing sizes until they are. Which, yes, also means the iPhone 12 is still Face ID, and only Face ID. No Touch ID, not in the power button, not under the display, not this year, at least. I really do hope Apple does add it back, though. In the age of pandemic, when wearing masks is as common as wearing gloves now, maybe even more so, multiple biometrics moves from being just a nice to have to a must have. If you're coming from an iPhone 6S to iPhone 10S, you'll also probably pretty much immediately notice 3D touch is gone as well. It left last year with the iPhone 11 and just isn't coming back. Now we have haptic touch instead, which is less of a firm press and more of a long press. It is more consistent across Apple's devices, namely the iPad lineup, but it's also slower. It's gotten better every year, but it still doesn't have the speed or tactility of 3D touch. I'm hoping Apple can implement better machine learning to deal with the speed and just keep tweaking the Taptic engine to better simulate the feel. But until they nail it, I'm just gonna keep on missing 3D touch. Now, there is one difference between the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 12 Pro panels. The regular iPhone 12 only sustains at 625 nits of typical brightness. That's when you're not watching HDR. And the iPhone 12 Pro sustains at 800 nits, which means probably just because Pro has to mean premium or just nicer in some ways, its display will be easier to see when you're out in the sun. For me, that's certainly a difference just not as major a difference as the previous year's LCD versus OLED. And it's just exactly the kind of pro-level upgrade I was talking about for the non-pro iPhones. So because of that, because of just OLEDing all the things, the biggest difference now between the iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro 
is the camera system. And yeah, I'll be doing a more in-depth camera review soon, so make sure you hit that subscribe button and bell so you don't miss any of it. But the gist is, the iPhone 12, like the iPhone 11, has a dual camera system. If you're coming from an iPhone 7 or 8 Plus or 10 or 10S, it's a different kind of dual camera system. Wide angle and ultra wide instead of wide angle and telephoto. In other words, it quote unquote zooms out instead of zooming in. The effect of 26 millimeter wide angle, which has always been just the best camera on the iPhone, is even better now. It has a faster f1.6 aperture. So it's not like Barry Allen fast or anything, but it's still the fastest iPhone alive. And it lets it take in 27% more light. There's also a new seven element lens system, one more element than before. So you get less noise and better sharpness as well, especially around the edges. And the optical image stabilization or OIS can now make 5,000 micro adjustments per second. So it can stay open longer and steadier. For most people, this just means you'll get better photos in lower light than ever before, which is good. 120 degree ultra wide angle, which has been the weakest camera since Apple introduced it last year is still pretty weak, at least comparatively. But what Apple can't yet beat with big physics, they're throwing even more big compute at, specifically computational lens correction. See, the wider the lens, the more the distortion around the edges. One minute, ultra wide. Cross that line though, and boom, fisheye. So Apple is using the image signal processor and what I'm guessing may be some very fancy AR kit style scene intelligence to just straighten out lines and normalize faces, at least to some extent. Typically, it's something that you'd pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get a special real world architectural lens for. But here, now, it's just one more check off on the computational photography boxes. And it's super exciting in theory. In practice, I do find the effect works best if I'm at mid-level with my subject. Apple's also iterated their smart HDR feature to version three and expanded both night mode and deep fusion to the ultra wide camera now as well. Also the selfie camera on the front while they were at it. Smart HDR typically handles bright scenes, making sure skies aren't blown out or details aren't lost in the shadows. Deep fusion works best in the middle, less bright, shadowed, indoors and the like, preserving texture and detail. Night mode just stacks brackets the crap out of low light to almost no light photos so it can bring out the subject while minimizing blur and noise and just maintaining that dark ambient mood. In other words, the iPhone can take multiple photos so fast and round trip them through the image signal processor and compute engine so quickly that it can just figure out what the different elements are in any given scene process them on a pixel by pixel basis and take all the best bits from all the best frames and serve you up something that's far, far better than just the sum of any of those bits by themselves. So while some phones have bigger optics, others better algorithms, no one is currently balancing the atoms and the bits the way that Apple is with the iPhone. And when you look at the results, not so much year over year, but over the steady consistent stretch of a few years, the improvements are pretty remarkable, especially in low light and depth compared to the iPhone 7 or HDR compared to the iPhone XS. But where the iPhone 12 Pro stands out is with the extra cameras and sensors. In addition to the same wide and ultra wide cameras and improvements, the 12 Pro also has an effective 52 millimeter F 2.0 telephoto camera, similar to what the dual cameras had in the iPhone 7 through 10s. In Apple terms, 
where the ultra-wide lets you step back from 1x to 0.5x, the telephoto lets you step forward to 2x, which is why I like having the telephoto so much. I mean, sometimes, yes, you can sneaker zoom in and out, just move physically closer or further away, but not always. And lenses don't just work by getting closer or further away either. They compress depth to a lesser or greater degree. That same distortion I talked about with the 20 millimeter also makes close objects look much closer and further objects look much further, whether that's a nose compared to a hoodie or a person compared to a tree. It's almost like hyperdimensional. With the 52 millimeter, it's the opposite. The distortion is less, which is why photographers love like 50 millimeter lenses, 80 millimeter lenses, so much for everything from portraits to product shots. And it's why I'll almost always default to the telephoto when I can, which is why I'll almost always default to the iPhone Pro version if I can. Unfortunately, other than extending the computational models like Deep Fusion across all the cameras, Apple didn't really do much to improve the zoom in aspect of the telephoto. I mean, 10 times digital zoom does look a bit better. Part of that might just be the better smart HDR processing. They're using smart HDR for smart zoom the way Google's been using HDR plus for super red zoom. Never mind periscope zoom cameras or 48 to 108 megapixel pixel bin sensors like Samsung or Huawei. And yes, I realize I just pontificated about more pixels not being as important as better pixels. But in this case, why not both? Once the world finishes ending, being able to take good zoom photos of kids or pets in the park, sites we're out seeing, just anything further away is a huge advantage. Part of Apple's whole approach to everyday photos is just to let us whip out our phones, tap or click, and get the best photo possible. And year after year, just increasing the range and conditions under which we can get those best photos possible. And really good zoom is still just a glaring gap in getting exactly that. So all the fingers crossed for next year. What Apple did do with the iPhone 12 Pro is add a LiDAR scanner, like the one they added to the iPad Pro back in March. And it's sort of like having a Face ID True Depth camera on the back, just not quite as dense, but with better range. So it can just ingest what's in the room in front of you or outside what's in a similarly sized distance in front of you. Right now, photographically, it's used to improve autofocus in low light, which means instead of it hunting for a few seconds in that little yellow square just blinking, it locks on almost immediately. And to extend portrait mode into low light because it doesn't have to interpret depth optically anymore. It has a literal freaking laser beam. Well. Not literal, it has light beams. But the LiDAR scanner also makes AR just much faster and better. It can start positioning AR objects almost immediately, which means you don't waste any time anymore just waving your phone around, waiting for it to detect a flat surface. And it handles everything from tracking to occlusion just much, much better. Apple already has their measure app on the iPhone and I really, really can't wait for some of the better 3D scanner apps from the iPad Pro to just make their way over to the iPhone as well. And fair bet, Apple's using all of these year over year improvements to build towards just something next. But even now, it all comes together to make a camera that's just incredibly fast, fluid, and fun to shoot with. And thanks to the LiDAR scanner now in just a wider range of conditions than ever before. And side note, 
Apple has also pre-announced Pro Raw for the Pro iPhone 12, basically trying to balance the flexibility of raw photography with the power of computational photography. But it's not coming out until later this year, so I'll cover it when it does. The improvements to the camera system also carry over to video, specifically the larger aperture for better low light and the more precise image stabilization for smoother, steadier shots. There's a new night mode time-lapse, so you can put together some really cool-looking shots from really long exposures. Recording is still capped at 4K60. There's no 4K120 yet for slow motion, which I was really hoping for this year, even if it needed to just take in all the light. Also, no 8K anything. Basically, for the same reason, there's no higher level of optical zoom. Apple's still using a 12-megapixel sensor, and 8K needs just 33 megapixels, at least. And yeah, I'd like 8K for pretty much the same reason I'd like greater optical zoom, just to punch in when and if I need to. But what Apple is doing is Dolby Vision. See, previously the iPhone could do extended dynamic range recording by interleaving the frames. Now it's doing full-on HDR by processing Dolby Vision dynamic metadata in real time as you record. It's even editable, with the data being retuned on the fly. And to maximize compatibility, the iPhone is also doing a standard dynamic range tone map. So if you share to a device without HDR, it just automatically gets sent the SDR version instead. And that's just a lot of tech speak to say videos shot with the iPhone 12 will look far more colorful, like 60 times more colorful, and have those same deep inky blacks and bright whites with detail in the shadows and highlights, like the Dolby Vision movies and shows you see on Disney Plus and Netflix and TV Plus. Now, Samsung phones offer HDR10 plus video recording, initially at a labs feature, but now up to 4K30 on the back camera with manual SDR conversion but the iPhone 12 will do Dolby Vision at 4K30 on the front and back cameras, and the iPhone 12 Pro, Dolby Vision at 4K30 on the front, but a whopping 4K60 on the back. And my guess is the only difference is because of that six gigabytes versus four gigabytes of RAM on the Pro versus regular 12 model. And in general, Dolby Vision offers higher potential bit depth and peak brightness, and typically better standards for tone mapping than HDR10. Sure, Apple is only going to 10 bits and 1200 nits right now, but their tone mapping is terrific, and I like that there's extra headroom to grow into with the same standard. More than that, I like that Apple is putting Dolby Vision cameras into the hands of millions of people in a simple and straightforward way, which will hopefully make HDR in general just far more fully mainstream. Because yelling first into spec sheets is just roughly the equivalent of yelling first into comment sections. And I already record these videos in 10-bit, but I upload them in standard dynamic range. And maybe this will help me change that. Now, all these real-time computational photography and Dolby video capabilities are thanks to the new A14 Bionic SoC, or System on a Chip. It's what does everything from Smart HDR3 using the new Image Signal Processor, or ISP, combined with the Apple Neural Engine, or ANE, which this year sees its core count double again from 8 to 16. It also has the performance and machine learning controllers, which round-trip the data between the CPU the ML, the Machine Learning Accelerators, or AMX, and of course the GPU, and the storage controllers that make sure you don't drop a single photo or frame of video, which 
you kind of just take for granted with the iPhone until you hear people yelling about dropped photos and frames on their phones. And all that to say, for me, real time is still a huge deal because it means I can see what I'm shooting. Like with an actual camera, I don't have to guess, wait for an after effect to process, get it wrong, try again, waste time, lose the light, lose the position, lose the moment, lose my mind. Anyway, I've already done a huge deep dive into the A14 Bionic. So I'll link to that in the description and just quickly go over a couple more key points. It's built on a five nanometer process, which means it can fit 1.8 times as many transistors into the same physical space. And it looks like Apple is using that to increase both speed and efficiency. Basically, anyone can make a chip go faster just by dumping more power into it or size. The trick is to increase performance through efficiency, which is a trick Apple just keeps pulling off. And I have a sneaky suspicion Platform Technologies is spending at least a good part of that transistor budget on more than just the CPU and GPU. It's gotten to the point where Apple Silicon isn't just industry leading, but industry lapping. And I know it's popular these days to say you don't need the latest or top of the line processors in a phone, but I'm gonna argue that yes, you really do. First, because chipsets enable feature sets. Smoothly scrolling an interface is like the lowest bar you can possibly set. If you want things like real-time computational photography, on-the-fly high dynamic range, functional augmented reality, or any cutting-edge feature set at all, you really need a cutting-edge chipset. And second, if you want to be able to keep scrolling that interface smoothly for years and for software updates to come, you're going to want as much processor overhead as well. Because if a phone costs half as much but only lasts half as long, what kind of savings is that really? The A14 handles everything the iPhone 12 throws at it with panache and should easily be able to handle four to five years of iOS updates. That's how many Apple is typically throwing at devices these days. So just like the iPhone 6S and original SE got iOS 14 this year, I fully expect the iPhone 12 to get iOS 18 in four years and maybe more. So. Apple didn't call this year's lineup the iPhone 5G, though that would have been a really clever way to just reset the whole numbering scheme. No, they called it the iPhone 12, right after 11. But 5G was all over the announcement, all over the iPhone 12. Literally every model has 5G and the same 5G, nothing different between the regular and the pro. And of course, the usual suspects who said the iPhone 11 was doomed without 5G almost immediately said the iPhone 12 was doomed with it, given the very, very low levels of 5G deployment in most of the world. And fair enough. I think both of those statements are missing the point though, unless that is the point. Apple is supporting FR1, frequency range one, or the low in mid-bands, pretty much everywhere. Low band isn't any faster than LTE, but has just much better capacity, which should aid in congestion and just getting more signal to more people in more places. Mid band, which is the one I'm really excited about, is quite a bit faster. Not blazingly fast, but way fast, and is what I think will just end up being most 5G for most people. In the US, Apple is also supporting FR2, frequency range two, or the high bands, what's commonly called millimeter wave, and it's blisteringly, almost terrifyingly fast, but it also has such short range and such poor penetration that if you turn the corner or go inside, or I don't know, a leaf falls, you could lose the signal. It's US only because most other places have sufficient FR1 spectrum that they just don't need FR2. The US doesn't, 
which is YFR2, at least for now. And yet, that's why US versions of the iPhone 12 have that weird oval on the side. It's for radio frequency, RF transparency. Older millimeter wave devices needed RF transparency on four of the six sides to work. Some newer ones try to get away with two. I'm assuming Apple's using the display and the back as well as this cutout at the very least. And yeah, millimeter wave. But regardless, the result is the most confusing carrier situation since CDMA. Back when you had to worry if you had an HSPA or EVDO phone, something no one has had to worry about for most of the run of LTE. And Apple's doing a pretty good job at abstracting away some of that complexity. They're supporting a ton of NR, or never retiring, sorry, I mean new radio bands. So as long as you have a local SIM card, because 5G roaming really isn't a thing yet, it should just work. The exception being you need a US iPhone 12 to get millimeter wave in the US, and a US iPhone 12 won't get millimeter wave anywhere else because it doesn't really exist anywhere else yet. And when and if it does, it'll probably use different FR2 bands anyway. Apple's also doing something they call smart data, where they'll automatically switch you between 4G LTE, long-term employment, kidding again, long-term evolution, and 5G NR to save as much power as possible. So if you're doing something like streaming music with the display off, you'll get LTE, because that's more than enough. But if you're doing something like downloading a movie and you want it now, you'll get 5G so that it can race to sleep, meaning turning the radio off again as fast as possible once you get that movie. And it's optional. You can turn smart data off, meaning set 5G to always on when it's available. But I personally like the idea, especially while 5G is really still waiting to mature. Apple's also made the LTE better. It has double the throughput now for a theoretical maximum of two gigabits per second, which basically means if you're alone in town sitting on the cell tower, but better is still better. And I think for anyone who's been getting subpar LTE performance on previous iPhones, the iPhone 12's new modem will make things better while you're still waiting on 5G. And for some people, that might be worth the price of upgrade alone. About five years ago, Apple started ripping, just ripping the beloved MagSafe power connectors off of MacBooks and replacing them with USB-C. They weren't as convenient when it came to somebody just tripping over your power cord, but they were way more convenient when it came to being able to plug that power cord into any and all ports possible. But it turns out Apple didn't kill MagSafe just to watch it die, no. Instead, they left it all cocooned up in some lab somewhere in Cupertino, no doubt safely secreted away behind a fish tank badge in. And in that time, it transformed into a new magnetic inductive charging and accessory connection system for the iPhone. The implementation is really simple and elegant. You have a ring of magnets on the back of the iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro. And that lets you just slap anything from a charger to a wallet to a case just right on them, and it'll stay stuck right there. And I'm very, very much hoping for a next generation smart battery case that instead of being a case, is just a thin slab that slaps right on the back as well. Like the wallet case, which is cute and all, but only really fits three credit card thick cards, maybe four if a couple of them are extra thin. If you're familiar with how the Apple Watch charging puck works, it's really similar to that. The disc isn't as big as a device like it is on the watch, so you have to sort of aim for the Apple logo. If you miss, you can just slide it around until you feel the magnets just suck it into place. But if you hit it, 
If you hit it, you're immediately rewarded with this incredibly satisfying like I half considered starting an Apple ASMR channel, satisfying thwuck. <laughs> and while the Apple Watch charger is still its own thing, it's not compatible, you can use the iPhone 12 on any of the older basic standard Qi wireless chargers as well. Having the inductive charger magnetically stuck on the back of the phone means you don't have to worry about the ultra slick glass just sliding out of place or plane off over the night, denying you your charge. You can even use it while charging, though because there's currently only a one meter cable version of the MagSafe charger, you'll need an extension cord close by, at least until someone makes a longer version. Now, Apple has famously or infamously removed the headphones and power brick from both the iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro they say to reduce e-waste and protect the environment, but probably also to keep the sticker price down and margins from going anywhere further down. Most phones went up in price by hundred bucks this year, thanks to 5G and switching the iPhone 12 to OLED certainly wasn't cheap either, but neither of those things changed that people who don't have a USB-C power adapter now have to buy one. And that includes most former iPhone owners who, for more than a decade have only ever gotten USB-A adapters. The cable in the box, which last year switched from Lightning to USB-A to Lightning to USB-C on the Pro models, has now done the same just on every model. So if you only have an old USB-A adapter, you better have your old Lightning to USB-A cable to go with it. Now, Apple is offering a new 20 watt power adapter at a reduced $20 price, but for most people, it's gonna be an extra financial and certainly cognitive burden in 2020, the year when most of us could really use just exactly the opposite of that. And I'd be tempted to dismiss it as Apple just being Apple, you know, deleting the floppy drive to push USB forward or deleting the headphone jack to mainstream headphones like the AirPods and sure, removing the AC adapter, and maybe next deleting the lightning port entirely, all to push adoption of inductive charging technologies to make the wireless world they've always been talking about. But here's the thing, the MagSafe charger doesn't come with an AC adapter either. And unlike the iPhone, where you can still use an old USB-A to lightning cable and adapter if you have one, the USB-C cable on the MagSafe charger is built in. So you need a USB-C adapter or a USB-C port on a computer for it to just work. And that's very pre-post PC. And I really wish it had been avoidable. The iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro ship with iOS 14, the latest version of Apple's mobile operating system. Yeah, the one that lets you put widgets just all over your home screen. I have a complete review up already with special guest John Gruber and I'll link to that in the description. It also runs all the iPhone apps in the App Store, including LiDAR apps on the iPhone 12 Pro. And Apple offers a bunch of free apps like GarageBand and iMovie and iWork and more, as well as free training at either the Apple stores that remain open or now online as well because 2020. And it's surprisingly good training, including music, photography, video, coding, design, education, and more. It's part of that value proposition that I've been wrestling with since the iPhone 12 announcement, where yes, the iPhone 12 Pro is the same price as the iPhone 11 Pro, a bit less even when you adjust for storage, especially for storage upgrades. But the regular iPhone 12, that's 
100 to 150 bucks more, depending on your carrier and AC adapter situation. And for that money though, you're getting an iPhone 12 that's closer, just far, far closer than ever to being an iPhone 12 Pro. Similar redesigns, just different colors and aluminum bands instead of stainless steel bands with a matte back. Very similar OLED displays, just not quite as bright when you're not showing HDR. Identical A14 Bionic chipsets, just four gigabytes of memory instead of six. Identical LTE and 5G, Wi-Fi 6 and Bluetooth 5.0 and U1 Ultra Broadband. Same App Store and Apple Store support. The only big difference is the additional telephoto camera and LiDAR scanner and double the extra base storage. And then for just 150 bucks more than that, you're getting the full-on iPhone 12 Pro with all of that. Phil Schiller has always had this slide, this slide where it shows every smaller Apple device pushing up against the bigger Apple devices, trying to take over all the jobs that they do, forcing the bigger Apple devices to push back if they wanna survive. And that's what this feels like here, that the regular iPhone is just pushing so hella hard against the iPhone 12 Pro model that those few features aside, the only way the iPhone 12 Pro can fight back this year is by maintaining that price, by increasing that value. And for me, that actually makes the Pro really worth it. Aside from connecting to the internet, the camera is just the most important feature to me. To quote someone I met in an iPhone lineup a few years ago, I can never go back in time and get better photos. So I always want the best camera I can have at any time. And not having to pay dime one extra for the pro model this year just really puts it over the top for me. But if none of that matters to you, and I think it won't to many, many people, you can get an almost pro iPhone now starting at around $850 for 64 gigabytes, 900 if you wanna go up to 128 gigabytes, which if you're not living that streaming everything lifestyle, and especially if you wanna shoot that 4K video, you probably really wanna do. If you're coming from an iPhone 6S or 7 or 8, even a 10 or 10R, Everything taken together from the OLED display to the better cameras and radios, MagSafe, just everything makes to me a really compelling upgrade. If it's just too much cash for you though, if you were never asking for OLED or 5G, Apple just did their usual price drop on last year's model as well. And you can now get an iPhone 11 with LCD and LTE starting at $600, which might just be super compelling in 2020. The iPhone 10R from 2018 is now starting at $500 as well. And this year's new iPhone SE, which is kind of like the iPhone 11 guts in an iPhone 8 body, starts at $400, which means pretty much an iPhone at every price point. And if you have an iPhone XS or 11, especially 11 Pro, and you don't just have money to burn, aren't on an annual update program, haven't figured out the whole sell the old one to get the new one, or just work in the tech industry, then you've got to really, really not just want, but need that new camera, especially on the 12 Pro, to remotely even consider it. But that just brings me back to my always advice. Wait as long as you can to buy. Then when you buy, buy what you need and enjoy the hell out of it. Have zero regrets because there's always something next. And buy then when you're ready, when you need next, that next will be just even better, especially considering how much AI, machine learning, computer vision, Apple's putting into the iPhone these days, into everything. 
And to learn more about all of that, maybe even get into all of that, check out Brilliant's new neural network course. It has this example of how, like if you lose your keys in your room and you really need to find them, even if you have no idea how to structure your guesses, you can still get better round after round. You can figure out your strategy based on the feedback of things like wall tile color, and you can find your keys in surprisingly few guesses. Sort of like how Apple's Find My Network works, but for keys, and who could ever imagine that? Brilliant's a website and app with over 60 interactive courses in math, science, computer science, logic and deduction, physics, quantum mechanics, game theory, cryptocurrency, and yeah, neural networks. It's based on problem solving and active learning. It's about seeing concepts visually and interacting with them, and then answering questions that get you to think. The courses are laid out like a story and broken down into pieces so that you can tackle them just a little bit at a time, anytime. And there are no tests, no grades. You just pick a course based on what you're really interested in and you get started. And if you make a mistake, it doesn't matter. You just check out the explanations to find out more and keep going. Go to brilliant.org slash Renee Ritchie and sign up for free. Just click on the link in the description or go to brilliant.org slash Renee Ritchie and the first 200 of you can also level up with 20% off the annual premium subscription. And clicking on that link just really helps out the channel. For more, much more on the iPhone 12 and just all of the new products Apple's bringing out this fall, click on the playlist right here. I'm doing all the unboxings, first looks, reviews, and deep dives. So click on the playlist and see you next video.